Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. This week, we're talking about a social and scientific experiment that has to do with outer space. That's right. For one full year, six people, a biologist, an architect, an engineer, a physician, a physicist, and a crew commander, lived in a 1,200-square-foot biodome on a volcano in Hawaii to simulate what it might be like to live on Mars for a year. Today, Trisha talks with one of those six individuals, Dr. Shana Gifford. Shana was the space doctor for the mission, which was called High Seas 4, and it was, we should add, the longest space simulation in NASA's history. In addition to being the doctor on board, Dr. Shana Gifford also served as the crew's journalist, and she wrote for the whole year that they were in the biodome on a blog, lifefrommars.life, which I was an avid reader of because, as some of you who are regular <laughs> listeners to the podcast know, I'm really into space, in particular. Mars. Like, I really would like to go to Mars. So Shana got out of the biodome in August of 2016, and since then she's been the scientist in residence at the St. Louis Science Center, where she continues to explore and promote her passion for space, science, and healthy life on Earth. Those are all good things to be passionate about. Those are all good things to be passionate about, totally. Shana, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you, Trisha. Lovely to be here. Shana, in case our listeners don't know, can you explain what the High Seas mission was and why exactly you were living in a 1,200-square-foot biodome with just five other people for a whole year? Patricia, I like the term biodome. I think it will trigger for people memories of either a very cheesy movie or a very strange social experiment. (laughs) (laughs) There were definitely biological life forms in the dome, although we were vastly overwhelmed by the amount of equipment, just for the record. Okay. (laughs) It was more like a computer dome than a biodome at the end of the day. Um, So High Seas, the Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation, it was an attempt to simulate one year on Mars, as if we had landed on Mars and we were setting up shop and bunking down for the long haul for the one year you would probably spend before heading back to Earth. So the way that Earth and Mars sync up in their orbits, there are very specific times. It's kind of like catching a bus. You can either catch an early bus and it's a short trip and or you can catch a late bus and it's a long trip. On the other hand, the late bus lets you sleep in. So there's certain advantages to traveling to and from other planets. And one of the best transfers between Earth and Mars involves staying on Mars for a year. So the question is, what becomes of the people who stay on that planet for a year? How much do they eat? How well do they sleep? How much exercise do they need? And in this study, we asked the question, How well do they get along during that year? How does the teamwork hold up? What are the factors that contribute to a cohesive or or more dysfunctional crew? And are there warning signs that NASA can learn to look for when there might be trouble ahead so that they can intervene? And how do they intervene? So that was sort of it. It was more of a psychological experiment. So you're checking for space madness, 
is something that we might say if we were talking about this in a science fiction setting. The idea that isolation from the outside world might have effects that we're not anticipating. So how are you keeping an eye on those things? What are you keeping track of and keeping an eye out for? It's interesting that you say space madness because we actually do this to humans every year down in the Antarctic. They do one-year overwinters every year, hundreds of people. And then people on submarines all over Earth do this. So it's less about space madness than about confinement madness, <laughs> the sense of keeping a group of people locked together and expecting them to continue to perform. The only difference between our experiment and the folks down in the Antarctic and the folks living in submarines on the Earth as we speak is that the Mars folks can't come home if something goes really wrong. <laughs> so um, space exploration is going to be a lot about people developing their own new culture. You know, we're not there to make a new Earth on Mars. Believe it or not, Mars looks nothing like an Earth and probably never will. All the beautiful photos you see of a Mars with lots of greenery and lots of water on the surface, Mars has no atmosphere. The only way we could possibly keep Mars's atmosphere in place would be to build an enormous space magnetic shield to keep the sun from ripping it away. Mars makes an atmosphere. It generates it. The rocks breathe out gas. But Mars doesn't have the kind of magnetic field that you need to keep an atmosphere the way that Earth does. Our magnetic field is one of our most precious natural resources. So unless we somehow protected the planet the way that, you know, we have here on Earth and built a huge magnetic field, some kind of science fiction type thing, Mars will never be like Earth. So it's really actually about what happens when humans get the opportunity to build a whole new culture, start fresh. What does it look like? How does it work? What do they need to make it succeed? How well did the group know each other before entering this experiment? That's a great question, Trisha. There are two answers to that. Some of us knew each other quite well. Um, the chief engineer and I had been on a previous mission, the asteroid mission, Harris 6, at Johnson Space Center. And the commander, the astrobiologist, and the chief scientist, chief scientific officer, had all been on a mission at Mars Desert Research Station. So the three of them knew each other, and the two of us knew each other. The six of us had never worked together on a crew before, and then we met our space architect, Tristan, for the first time when we all went through a Knowles training course, National Outdoor Leadership Training Course, which is something the astronauts do as well. They ship you off on a hike through the Grand Tetons for a week, and at the end of that, if everyone is still alive, okay. Yeah, maybe we're good to go. It's it's a time for people to realize, you know, this isn't always going to be easy. It's always going to be work. And sometimes that's going to be a lot of fun. And we're just going to have to embrace the challenges along with everything else. So, Shana, what was the biodome like inside? Can you describe the physical layout for us? So probably the easiest thing to actually imagine is the cargo space inside a big rig. So you've got this cargo shipping container. You know, And if you reorganize the interior space of that shipping container into a two-story geodesic dome, that is where the six of us slept, ate, worked out, lived, grew plants, carried out experiments, generated um, – not generated our electricity that came from our solar panel array, but stored it and converted it all from DC into usable AC, danced – uh, saying through parties. What was the dance playlist like? Can you give us a sense of what was on the playlist? The, uh, the, the chief scientific officer was quite fond of salsa. Apparently, this is very German 
Which, being from L.A., I have no objection to. So uh, it was quite a lot of, you know, very exuberant uh, Latin music for dancing and then for working out. It was actually dependent on who was running the stereo for the workouts. It could vary from anything from electronica to country, which our commander was quite fond of, being from Montana, to um, I really like jazz, classical, or punk rock with a beat music to work out to. So it really would depend on who was running the running the radio station that day. See, this is but, fascinating uh, to me because even on a long road trip and even with family or good friends, I feel like what music to listen to can often be a contentious conversation. You know, I think we had bigger problems. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, there were six of us in seven days of the week. Each of us cooked one day of the week, could choose music one day of the week. It's, you know, and the seventh day of the week, we could rest. So, you know, you just have to share with the other boys and girls in space. Otherwise, it's not going to work out. I wonder how you saw the group become like a family. Was it like a TV sitcom ever? <laughs> Did it feel more like a TV sitcom or a, the real world <laughs> at various points, I guess? Um, I think I'm going to punt and say door number three, <laughs> Tricia. It felt a bit more like Star Trek, uh, the original Trek, uh, than Next Gen or DS9. Uh, you know how on the original Trek, there's a constant dynamic of personalities between the commander, the chief medical officer, and the chief scientific officer. It is loving and antagonistic by turns, but always, always the mission comes first because we are out here to explore. That is pretty much exactly what it was like. To boldly go where no man has gone before. After the break, Shana tells us about the spacesuits they had to wear on simulated Mars, a.k.a. a volcano in Hawaii, when they would leave the dome. But first, we have some exciting Nerdette news. For the first time ever... After four years of making this show, we are doing a fundraiser. And Greta, for folks who aren't super familiar maybe with the public radio ecosystem, can you explain what this is all about? Yes, here's the deal. Nerdette is made by WBEZ, and more than half of the dollars that WBEZ gets to make cool stuff come from listeners like you. So that's why we are asking you good nerds out there to help support the thing you love, which is Nerdette, by throwing us some bucks. Now, this can be like... 5 or $10, or maybe you're in the thank you gift mood and you want to get something cool for the dollars you give us, in which case there are two possible thank you gifts, right, Tricia? We have a delightful Nerdette notebook, which could be yours as a thank you gift if you give us $25. Again, this is tax deductible because we are a nonprofit journalism organization, so you can feel warm and fuzzy and not have to pay taxes on this cash. For $60, you can get a really sweet Nerdette mug, but I just want to go back to this notebook for a second because we have been passing this notebook around the office, and we work with some pretty good nerds here at WBEZ. It's a room full of hardworking journalists, many of whom... Are pretty big nerds. <laughs> and we've been collecting nerd confessions They've inside been writing this notebook. Secrets in the Nerdette notebook. <laughs> nerd secrets. We've been posting some pictures of these on our Instagram and Twitter, but do you want to read maybe one or two, Trisha? Here's maybe my favorite. Okay. Quote In high school, I had a yo yo holster I wore on my belt. <laughs> yeah, that is maybe the best one in there, actually. If you want a Nerdette notebook to write your nerdiest secrets in or your big ideas for world domination, write whatever you want in it. It's your thank you gift if you can give $25 to support Nerdette and public radio. The way to give is by texting Nerd Alert to 30644. 30644. Pick the amount you want to give. Give us your credit card info. It's fast, easy, secure, and pick a thank you gift. Thank you for giving whatever you can, and thank you for listening to Nerdette.
Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. What were the spacesuits like when you had to go outside? To leave the dome, you had to get in a suit, go into the airlock, and wait out a five-minute decompression cycle. That was just a simulation. The suits were either hazmat suits or they were a specially designed Mars simulation suit, if you could fit in it. Not all the crew members could. It was rather small. So the the hazmat suits are like the kind of thing you see people wear on TV or in a hospital, full get up with a giant view screen and big plastic crinkly limbs. And it was actually good for a couple things. It really did break your fall. So when you fell on the lava... You didn't completely get scratched up. Lava is very sharp. So it was good for that. It encumbered your movement and it limited your view. So in that sense, it was a good simulation suit. The other suit um, had an actual bowl. It had an actual giant loud fan and you had an LCG, a liquid-cooled garment you wore under the suit. It was big. It was bulky. You couldn't really bend your knees very well. It was made to be more like a simulation suit. And then three of us, the space engineer, the um, crew architect, and myself got together and actually designed a third type of suit called the Z2, uh, which NASA has on board. So NASA has designed or is working on a design for a suit for Mars. And uh, we took that design and we actually modified it to be a simulated suit. And we're working on that now. So, Shana, how did you end up on this mission? Why was this something that you wanted to do? It's a commitment. As you said, you know, you're away from family for a year and all the creature comforts. Why do this? Why spend a year living among just five other people? (laughs) Well, there's a lot of good reasons to do that. Uh, The commander actually wrote a great blog post, Why Everyone Should Live in a Dome for a Year. It just teaches you to appreciate everything you have on this planet. Lights that turn on when you want them to. Water that can run when you want it to. The ability to call your friends and family and hear their voices in real time. All of those things that you just think of as something you can do at the drop of a hat become impossible on Mars and therefore become very precious. So it's good for you as a person. It gives you a sense of perspective and gratitude. That isn't why I did it, per se. Um, I did it because we need to advance a lot if we're going to make it as an interplanetary species. There's a lot we need to learn, and mostly we need to learn what we need to learn. We need to learn what the questions are. So I did it as, uh, as part of my duty, both to the human race and to science and to this country, which is part of an, an ongoing space effort. And I did it also because I always wanted to do it. I've wanted to go to space ever since I was a kid, and this is living the dream. So it's kind of a beautiful thing when you actually get to achieve the thing you always wanted, and you still have more than half a lifetime to go. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, you mentioned since you were a kid. Do you remember the first thing that opened your eyes to space exploration? Well, one of my earliest memories is of sneaking out of my window at night in Los Angeles to see the grand total of three stars that one can see at night in Los Angeles in the sky and thinking that that was awesome. I do remember when Sally Ride launched. I am old enough that that was one of my earlier memories. It never actually occurred to me that women didn't go to space. 
Um, I just always presumed they did. And later on, it occurred to me, no, that was the beginning of it all right then when I was a kid. I do. One of my earliest memories is also of my father showing me the pictures from Viking 1 and 2, the landers, and him going, look, this is Mars. And I said, really? It looks like Utah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Mars is not appetizing to look at. Mars is a barren wasteland to the best of our knowledge, and yet it is beautiful and enticing and intriguing and mysterious and challenging. And I do like the idea of humans being able to go. And that's why we have to do missions like this, so that we can one day go. If not me, then somebody else. Do you think pop culture can play a role in that, in actually getting humans to Mars? I'm thinking about the success of a film like The Martian. What role do those types of space movies or TV shows play in the journey you think we need to do scientifically? So what you're really asking me is, what is the relationship between mass media and human psychology? And there is an answer. (laughs) Mass media in many ways sets the bar for what humans perceive of as possible, right? Yeah. So the first time that a man and a woman shared a bed on television, um, the first time there was a televised presidential debate, televising the walk on the moon, these things allow us to understand what's possible in life. So if you can visually see it, it actually allows you to wrap your brain around it as a possibility. And now to be more specific about your question, what Andy Weir did was show people how difficult it's going to be and why it's worth doing anyway. Certainly there are plenty of movies showing humans going to Mars, but they all seem like science fiction. This one seemed more like documentary. And I give all due credit to Andy and to Jim Green from NASA who helped make that movie and, of course, to everybody who went into producing it and acting in it, is it made it personal. Personalizing the experience is an enormous part of making that accessible and desirable to people. And I think that's the role that media plays in human psychology. They make it possible and at, at, at a very minimum, and they make it personal at a very maximum at the best that they can do. And they made it, I think, feel like it's going to take a community. Yeah. Space builds community. That's what it does. And that's the best that we are when we put everything else aside and work together on a mission. Is there anything from The Martian that stuck out to you, especially with the expertise and experience you have as just being wrong or unrealistic? (laughs) Well, I won't rag on it. Um, (laughs) Andy would be the first to admit that you don't flee dust storms and terror on Mars any more than you would flee someone walking up to you and going, <laughs> you know, that's, that's not scary. A dust storm on Mars wouldn't even straighten a flag. And you see them coming, if not days, weeks away. Moving beyond that, uh, if you were to walk out into a Martian dust storm, even though they're not terribly scary, you would be tethered to one another. One person would not blow away. Everyone could potentially, I guess, blow away if it were strong enough, but not one person. You wouldn't lose an individual. You'd all be clipped in. Um, It was pretty funny. Um, Fox Searchlight beamed us up the movie, just like they did to the International Space Station. So we watched it on simulated Mars, kind of like a movie night. We all got popcorn. And at points when I think it was probably inappropriate, we would laugh. (laughs) Like, newbie error, you know. uh, (laughs) um, Right after they come in from the EVA, the movie starts or the scene where the crew is on Mars starts with the crew all on EVA in these very accommodating suits that fit them perfectly and they can make fists and walk easily. It's quite enviable and I hope we can make suits like that someday. They come in to discuss whether or not they should flee the oncoming storm and they're still wearing their suits. That's not something you do. You dock and you leave your suits in the airlock because otherwise what you do is 
you drag in a ton of Martian dust. It's magnetized. It gets on all your stuff. It gets in your food. But worse, once you go back out in your suit, stuff from inside your dome gets on Mars. And that's not something we want to do. Cross-contamination is, is an issue. So we wouldn't come in in our suits. We'd leave the suits out and we'd come in. Later on, Matt Damon repairs the missing airlock with I believe it is packing tape. Yeah, I think it is. Which is, it's magical space packing tape, but that's okay. <laughs> he does repair his face shield at one point with tape. That is possible. Um, there's something called speed tape that you can use to actually repair airplanes. It withstands incredible amounts of cold and wind. That might work. I Actually, the BBC asked me once, can you do that? I said, yeah, actually, you can. Not with duct tape, but maybe with speed tape. Speed tape, wow. Speed tape, yeah. If you ever see them repairing your plane with tape... That's a thing. That would make me more calm about seeing someone just putting tape on the wing of a plane. So yeah. thank you. Now that I know that, I would have panicked before being like, that looks like packing tape. I don't know if we should fly packing tape. I did that to my car when I was a teenager once for a mirror, but I'm not sure I want to fly in something that does that. This tape has been rated for flight. Yes, it's speed tape. Mm -hmm. I'm also just so impressed that you had popcorn in your simulated Mars. Oh, I was expecting yes. the food to be a little more MRE style, a little more freeze-dried. The, um, the uh, mission to the asteroid mission was all MREs. And, you know, there is some truly delicious MRE out there. MRE gets a bad rap, A, in general. But B, NASA's food lab is entirely comprised of geniuses. I'm pretty sure that they find the smartest people on Earth and put them in the NASA food lab. Because if you don't have well-fed people, you don't get science. No coffee, no science. No donut, no science. So the NASA equivalent of MREs, space food, is really good except the sweet and sour kale. I told them, and they took issue with it, but no, nobody likes the sweet and sour kale. Other than that, space food is pretty good. And the Europeans, just so you know, have their own menu. Ah. You know, uh, Bernays sauces and all these other things they send up with their astronauts. Heaven forbid they should have to eat Texan barbecue, which is shipped up with American astronauts. Or heaven forbid they should have to eat borscht, which is shipped up with the Russian astronauts. Each type of crew has their own type of food, and menus are suited to the individual. So, so you can listen to salsa and eat borscht. <laughs> I like it. Well, we did not have MREs on high seas. We had too long a mission. We had um, 10 of shelf-stable food by the gallon or by the kilogram. And we actually had to cook it. We had to make it palatable. It was just bags of freeze-dried broccoli and freeze-dried chicken and pre-cooked chunked turkey, which, if you work a little voodoo, can actually be formed into something that looks very much like a turkey. We discovered ways to make chicken nuggets out of uh, freeze-dried chicken and flour and spices. Um, it involves a lot of magic. Um, <laughs> Do you remember what the first trip to the grocery store was like after the year in the dome? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just wondering if that suddenly having so many more options would feel overwhelming to walk into a Whole Foods or a, a big grocery store after a year of very defined and structured choices to suddenly I, have... I Everything. I know what you're asking. Yeah, I know what you're asking, Trisha. Yeah, the yeah. answer is it always feel. I always feel like an alien walking into a grocery store. <laughs> but yeah, no, I really don't. I know that I did, but I think it was all a blur because I hadn't. It's not just that I hadn't seen grocery stores. I hadn't seen stores, or streets, or cars, or people, sure. and money. Money cannot be exchanged for goods and services on Mars. <laughs> right. Right. There is no commerce on Mars as such. I mean, you might, you know, trade a back massage for someone else doing your dishes, but there is no formal 
type of commerce. So there's so much going on in the world at any one time that the first few days out of confinement are, as anyone who can has been to the Arctic or been on a long sea mission or, or been deployed at all can tell you, it's very overwhelming. You only remember a few things from it because it is such such an overload. In just a minute, homework from Shana Gifford. You're listening to Nerdette. I want to ask just one more question before I let you go, and that's to give our Nerdette listeners some homework. So I'll offer the ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, humans at home, if going to Mars or traveling in space appeals to you, think of yourself already as a traveler in space. You're traveling in space, you're on a very large ship, the size of the Earth, and just like in space, resources are limited. You have only so much food, water, so much air. So begin to look around your world and think of yourself as having only so much of anything. Behave accordingly. Buy only the food you're going to eat, and if you're not going to eat it or use it, compost it. Turn lights off. Wash dishes in the sink and then use that water to do the floor. Plant something that generates oxygen. And really choose when you buy things, when you purchase things, when you fill your life with stuff... Think of it as the thing you want with you on your ship. And if you don't want it with you on your ship, do you really want it? Fill your life with the people you want with you on your ship. And if you don't want them with you on your journey to the unknown, well, maybe choose other people. And most of all, decide who it is you most want to be in life and be that person. Be your boldest, most brilliant, most generous, <laughs> most patient individual, because that's the kind of person that survives in space. Maybe not the academic genius, but the social genius, the one who looks past frustrations and finds a greater mission with the people in their lives. Those are the people who make it in space. So if you want to be a space cadet, please start now. Trisha, I think we both have really just loved that homework a whole lot. And there's one extra thing that we want our listeners to do, too, right? Yes. Dr. Shana Gifford is putting up a new post on livefrommars.life where she's asking you to give her some homework. Her and the others who did the simulation on that volcano in Hawaii, they want to know what you want to hear from them next. Should they write more? Should they go on a speaking tour? Should they make videos? They want to keep sharing their scientific discoveries and experiments with you, but they want to know how you want to get your homework. So head over to lifefrommars.life to interact with Dr. Shana Gifford some more, because I got to say, she's got great advice for all of us here, and I would like to keep hearing more from her. But tell her what you want to know. Do you think they would be open to a reality TV show? Oh, I mean, it sort of sounded like one, didn't it? Having to live in close quarters like that. It was sort of like an MTV throwback. I would very happily watch that. But as she said, it was more like Star Trek. The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, along with Justin Bull and Candace Mattel. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer. Our intern is Brady Guy. I'd put all of them in my spaceship. <laughs> I would too, actually. That's good. That's good. Subscribe to us on iTunes, follow us on NPR One, or listen in the WBEZ app. 
You know who gave us five stars on iTunes and who is very kind is Wavanak. I have a feeling this person is Alaskan because in their very nice iTunes review, they said, Jacob, your sister has an awesome podcast. So thanks, Jacob, for introducing your friends to Nerdette. Good job. Thanks, Jacob. <laughs> Guerrilla marketing and by thanks, Nerdette siblings. Wavanak. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We are at Nerdette Podcast in all those places. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Your homework is about space this week, so you should extra, extra do it. But it's also about owning your life. Yeah. And getting enough sleep. Dr. Shana Gifford is kind of like my space Oprah. <laughs> Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.